Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Rishi Sunak presented a Sped Now Tax Later budget this week, which pled to see Britain through the worst of the COVID crisis, but postponed the tricky decisions till later. The amount we've borrowed is comparable only with the amount we borrowed during the two world wars. It's going to be the work of many governments over many decades to pay it back. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this budget special, we'll be dissecting Rishi Sunak's big fiscal statement, what it means for the UK economy and politics generally. First, we'll dig into the spending pledges, the tax rises and the state of the public finances with our gurus, political editor George Parker and economics editor Chris Giles. And later, we'll be examining in detail the pledges to level up England, whether the efforts to move civil servants out of London, open Freeport, and all these pots of money will actually help left-behind areas. Andy Bounds, our North of England correspondent, will be analysing, along with special guest Diane Coyle, economics professor at the University of Cambridge. But George and Chris, welcome back. Hi, Seb. Hey, Seb. Now, Budget Week at the FT is our cup final, Christmas, New Year's Day, wedding anniversary, everything all rolled into one, Chris. So how was remote Budget Day for you? Well, it wasn't that remote. I went in for the first time since, I think, November, because it's just impossible to do that from home. It was nice. It was nice to get out of the house. Well, George, you and I were in Parliament, where we've been occasionally when workers required us to be there. And Westminster not quite felt back to normal, but it felt almost positively full with the maximum 50 MPs in the House of Commons and Rishi Sunak addressing the 1922 committee. Yeah, I think it makes a difference even having just a small crowd in there, doesn't it? For, from our point of view, Seb, I think it's vital to be, you know, on a day like Budget Day to be in the House of Commons, sensing the atmosphere, talking to MPs. I managed to grab about 10 minutes with Rishi Sunak just before he addressed the 1922 committee on the committee corridor. He was stuck outside the room waiting to be invited in. So sadly for him, he had to spend 10 minutes talking to me. I'm sure he was delighted to have the human interaction. Sure he was. (laughs) Now let's move on to the main topic of the week. Delivering a budget in the time of a pandemic can never be simple, but Rishi Sunak has had to do it twice. When he stood up in the House of Commons on Wednesday, there were only 50 MPs present to hear his statement that tore up Tory economic orthodoxy. Out went tax cuts to stimulate growth. In came another £65 billion of spending over the next two years. Even though Sunak's budget was seen as a leftward economic shift, it still contained some nasty surprises, including the biggest tax burden since man first landed on the moon and yet more spending cuts. Paul Johnson of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, however, felt that his pledges to chop departmental spending are unlikely to ever be fulfilled. Are we really going to spend £16 billion less on public services than we were planning pre-pandemic? I'd say no, of course not. The NHS is the most obvious. Further top-ups seem near inevitable. 
The Chancellor's medium-term spending plans simply look implausibly low. Chris, let's begin with the overall state of the public finances. Obviously, the economy has been under a huge contraction through the COVID period, aside from those brief moments when it opened up last year. But what has the Office for Budget Responsibility forecast for the coming years ahead? Well, let's do the year we're in. That's 2020 stroke 21. And here we're going to have the biggest level of public borrowing since the Second World War. So Rishi Sunak was entirely right in that early clip saying we have just seen an extraordinary amount of borrowing. And it wasn't really borrowing because of the recession so much. It was a borrowing to essentially replace income when you had to lock down the country because of coronavirus. So 355 billion, a little bit better than we thought in November, but still 17% of national income. And next year, 234 billion. These are forecasts, they're going to change. But still, that is bigger than the peak borrowing at the global financial crisis. So again, even though we expect the economic recovery to be better than from the financial crisis, because it wasn't an economic problem that caused the shock, the public finances have been under an enormous strain. Debt is now up another 25 percentage points in national income or so, underlying debt very close to the size of national income, £2.2 trillion. So that's where we are. By the end of the forecast, the Office of Budget Responsibility expected before all the measures to be down to a current budget deficit. So that's excluding investment of £37 billion. And that was essentially the whole. So even though the Treasury before the budget was denying they had a £40 billion number kicking around, they had a £40 billion number kicking around, which was the whole that they were being given by the OBR. And that's what they filled essentially with tax rises. And that's the budget in a nutshell. Brilliant summary there, Chris. Now, George, how optimistic do you think Rishi Sunak was being here? Because obviously the economy is going to be pretty slow next year, but the level of growth that he forecasts for next year is over 7%. And I think that would have been the fastest growth in one year since 1941. So clearly there is a good feeling that the vaccine is going to get the economy moving again quickly and Britons are going to open their wallets pretty rapidly. Yeah, I think that's the hope. Although, Chris, may correct me if I'm wrong here, but the OBR's forecasting growth of 4% this year, which is probably less than some of the other people are forecasting. So, you know, the growth forecast may be broadly realistic. And certainly it's worth noting that in the latter part of the forecast period, growth returns to sort of rather an anemic 1.6, 1 1.7%. So your gut feeling is that people are going to go out and spend when the lockdown finally ends. You know, there's a lot of optimism around Rishi Sunak's forecast. The biggest one is around, Chris was mentioning, the question of public spending. That's where I think the budget has started to unravel most quickly. You know, can they possibly afford to sustain public services in the wake of the pandemic on the current spending envelope without putting up taxes? And I think that's the problem. I have a feeling already in my bones that the second budget that Rishi Sunak delivers in 2021, the one in November, is going to be much tougher than this one. Because this is one of the things, Chris, that I think when you start to delve into the detail that, yes, it's £65 billion on spending, but in there are these cuts to government departmental spending. And of course, we know Boris Johnson doesn't like the idea of austerity. And given the hauling public services have been through, the idea that you're going to chop back government departments by about £4 billion a year doesn't look as if it's realistically going to happen, does it? No, it's not going to happen. There's two sorts of cuts in this budget. One is the cuts compared with the plans that were put in place in March 2020 budget, and that's the 16 billion. Roughly 12 billion of that was in the autumn statement in November, which was the cut to 
overseas aid budgets and the freeze in public sector pay, which of course blew up just after the budget with the NHS being outraged by being given only a 1% pay rise or the suggestion of that. So that's the 16 billion. But there's also another enormous cut, which is in 2022 stroke 23, the Chancellor wants to take away lots of the pandemic-related spending he's given to the NHS, to schools, etc., but particularly the NHS. And so there's a very, very large cut in the planned budgets of those departments where we move away from war footing. But that's going to feel very tough at the time. And so ultimately, with these two sorts of spending cuts, well, they're not going to happen, frankly. And that means that we're going to be looking almost certainly at further tax increases. Well, that's the thing, isn't it, Chris? Come the autumn, the chance we face with either austerity in certain parts of the budget, which obviously is off the table politically, Boris Johnson says that's not possible, or significant tax rises. And speaking to Tory MPs this week, Seb, outside that 1922 committee, they all seem to be willing to accept the tax rises in this budget, even though they didn't like it. But, you know, come the autumn, we could be talking about much more politically painful tax rises. And already you hear people talking about the fact that the Chancellor almost certainly will have to rip up that famous triple tax lock contained in the Tory manifesto covering income tax, VAT and national insurance rates. Because without that, it's hard to see how he can raise the money needed to fund those public spending obligations Chris has been talking about without going into some very, very sensitive areas for Tory MPs. For example, capital gains tax reform or reforming uh, the higher rate of pension tax relief. One of the things that the Treasury is hoping for in the background and must be Sunak's hope too, is that ultimately the OBR will come back in the autumn and say, well, actually, the long-term economic position is rather better than we thought. There won't be a 3% long-term hit to the economy. Maybe it's only 1%. And then that would suddenly give him quite a lot of extra money to play with. But that's terribly uncertain. We have very, very little idea at the moment about what the long-term hit to the economy is. Now, Chris, to come in on what's going on with tax as well, because the biggest headline figure was probably corporation tax, which is due to rise in 2023 from 19 to 25%, which is pretty significant. And there's a question again, if that's ever actually going to happen. Why is this being delayed for a couple of years? And what's the reaction from the city been? Well, the delay is pretty clear. So after the global financial crisis in 2008-2009, we started raising taxes in this country, both Labour and the Conservative government in 2010. And that was felt, I think, with hindsight, probably too early. Even though the economy was recovering at the time, it hadn't recovered enough. And that probably slowed the recovery, although probably didn't have a permanent hit, but it did make it more difficult. So the idea this time is to get the economy as close to back to normal as possible before you repair the public finances. And I think that is a consensus position across the political spectrum and across economics more generally. So that's why it's 2023. If you then put in a very large increase in corporation tax, you then have to think about what effect does that have on investment in the near term? So if companies know they're going to have to pay a lot of additional tax on profits in future, they might well stop investing now. And I think that then explains the super deduction in the first two years to make it really attractive to invest in the next two years so you don't damage the recovery. And let's just put the corporation tax into perspective. It's very popular, this budget, because people feel that other people are paying the tax increases. But 
other people don't pay taxes. We all pay taxes. So even though the tax will be paid physically by a company, it will come ultimately out of funds from shareholders, workers or customers. And that balance is difficult, but we know those are the people who ultimately will pay the corporation tax increase. And George, Rishi Sunak tried to balance this off with the super deduction as well. Can you explain what that is and what you make of it? Well, it's basically a massive incentive for people to bring forward their investment decisions, as Chris was mentioning. And the idea really is to suck those investments forward and to put rocket boosters under the economy over the next couple of years in the hope that you can supercharge the economy, supercharge the recovery, boost your tax receipts and avoid some of the nasty choices he's going to have to make on taxes later in the year. So that's why he's doing it. It's a signal, I think, also of the kind of economy that Rishi Sunak wants to build. Corporation tax is a tax, ultimately, as Chris said, paid by workers, customers and shareholders, but in the first instance, paid by generally large companies in the fortunate position to be making a profit at the moment. I think what Rishi Sunak wants to do is to build an economy which is based more on investment and on this kind of nimble and agile firms that he eulogises about in budgets, the kind of companies that he wants to see listing on the London Stock Exchange with some reforms that were announced alongside the budget proposed by Lord Hill. He wants to sort of have a paradigm shift of the economy towards startups, towards investments. That means that at least in the medium term, large multinational corporations are going to be the ones picking up the bill. So Chris, let's just look at the overall politics aside from the economics of this. This budget's gone down relatively well. The two areas that appear to be unsticking so far, one is about the pay rise of the NHS, which looks to be just 1%. And of course, Labour have jumped on this, particularly in the context of the pandemic and the pressures the health service has been under. The second is accusations of pork barreling, which we're talking about later in the podcast with funds going to very Tory voting areas. But generally, given the fact that this is a tax rising budget, it's amazing how Conservatives have just gone along with this and Labour hasn't really had that many broad criticisms of it. Yes, I think it's smart politics. It's not necessarily smart economics, but smart politics to do two things. One is to make a case that you have to pay back the money borrowed over the pandemic. The fact is, we're not going to pay this money back. We're going to service the debt, but the narrative is all about paying it back. And the second is that someone else pays it back, not you. The feeling that companies are paying it back and that in some way inflation's paying it back. You don't see it on a day-to-day basis in your pay packet. The feeling is that you don't notice a bill going up yourself that much. And so these tax increases are the ones which probably have the least political pain and therefore it's gone down relatively well. And George, this was a budget really with the red wall in mind. Those are the parts of the country that voted Conservative for the first time in 2019 and backed Brexit and with all the announcements in terms of levelling up, but also in terms of how they're looking at the tax rises as well. Those MPs seem pretty happy, but the fiscal hawks that you and I bumped into this week, they didn't seem too concerned either. No, they didn't. I mean, the pitch was rolled, wasn't it, very effectively by the Chancellor. So they knew that the corporation tax rises were coming and they were pretty sure that the income tax thresholds were going to be frozen. So they kind of knew it was coming. And as I said, I think they were prepared to accept that for now and will have been very impressed. You know, you saw people patting Rishi Sunak on the back saying he played a blind maze and all this sort of stuff because they saw Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, struggling to land a blow on Rishi Sunak in the chamber. It's very hard for the Labour Party to attack a budget which looks a little bit like a Labour budget, doesn't it? You know, an additional £65 billion of public spending, followed by tax rises on big corporations and people paying the higher rate of income tax and so on. So 
politically, it was an astute budget. And also, I think the other thing was it attempted to put some sort of definition on what levelling up is about. And you speak to ministers who sometimes say levelling up is such a broad concept, it doesn't actually really mean anything. And I know you'll talk about this later in the podcast, but the important thing, I think, from a political point of view, was that Sunak was able to say, look, we want to put you know, a flag in the ground and say, this is what it's about. And he kicked on Teesside, it will be a free port. There's going to be an outpost of the Treasury. There's going to be carbon capture and storage. There's going to be vaccine development. There's going to be tech startups. He needs to be able to put a face on that big political project. And Teesside, I think, is that face. And Chris, I think the most striking line for me was actually Keir Starmer when he was talking about the Tory orthodoxy here, that he said, one day we'll be able to take our masks off and so will the Chancellor. And when his mask slips, we'll see the real Rishi Sunak. And what he's saying is that all this kind of new economics Tories are putting forward for now is just a ruse for the pandemic. And in fact, they're going to revert to type in the future and that will give an opening for Labour. But the thing that struck me in the budget is, what if that doesn't happen? What if Rishi Sunak goes against probably his most innate Thatcherite instincts and sticks to this kind of more left-wing kind of economics? That is a real problem for Keir Starmer. It's a real problem to see how you define yourself against something that's very close to yourself. It's exactly what the Conservatives faced when Tony Blair was Prime Minister from the other side. So there are some definitively difficult moments ahead for the government. If the economic forecasts don't improve or even get worse, then the public finances are going to be a real problem. And then you are faced with the choice ultimately of either spending cuts further tax increases, which will have to be a bit more obvious that people are paying in their pockets, or more borrowing, which the Conservatives don't want to do. And I think Rishi Sunak has essentially ruled that out now after this budget. That is the big hope for Labour, I think, is in some ways that the economic forecasts don't improve, meaning the government has to take some really properly tough choices, and then they'll have an opening in opposing them. And I think that just in the immediate aftermath of the budget with Keir Starmer's response in the chamber, you could tell he was floundering around trying to work out how on earth you could attack a budget which might, in some circumstances, have been scripted by John McDonnell. But that is why the day after the budget, the Labour Party was so, you know, I don't want to sound cynical about this, but relieved to see the government announcing this proposed 1% pay rise for nurses. Because if you're Keir Starmer, this is prima facie evidence that the mask is already starting to slip from Rishi Sunak, that this is someone who is prepared to balance the books on the back of hardworking health workers who've been through a pandemic. I think it's a big misstep by the government, certainly in terms of the timing on this, because Rishi Sunak, I'm sure, would see it as sort of a generous act towards the NHS, given the fact that many other public sector workers are facing a pay freeze, but yet a 1% pay rise while the pandemic's still on looks like really, really bad politics. Indeed, and I look forward to the inevitable policy U-turn on that in the weeks and months ahead. (laughs) George and Chris, thank you very much. Leveling up was a core part of this year's budget. The Chancellor announced the first aid free ports, the decision to set up the Treasury's first office outside of London, and the first sums given out through special funds to help England's towns. But it's the latter that's prompted accusations of pork barrel politics. Out of the £1 billion in cash in the Towns Fund, 40 out of the 45 areas have Conservative MPs. The opposition leader, Sir Keir Starmer, was disappointed. For the Chancellor, levelling up seems to mean moving some parts of the Treasury to Darlington, creating a few free ports and re-announcing funding. 
that isn't levelling up, it's giving up. So Andy Bounds, let's just begin with levelling up generally. This is the government's agenda to address regional inequality. What did you make of the provisions in the budget for levelling up? Did it leave you disappointed? Most people I've spoken to were a little bit disappointed, actually, except those red wall Tory MPs who were able to stand up and say, my area got X, my area got Y. And obviously, Ben Houchen, the mayor of Tees Valley, who got the Freeport and Treasury Campus in Darlington. The feeling is that it's very much having to go to Whitehall cap in hand to get funding, rather than being given the powers and funding to change the face of your area yourselves. And Diane Coyle, you've argued for some time the Treasury needs to shift its policy-making mindset away from Whitehall and London and maybe some of the more metropolitan needs. Did you feel that was achieved in this budget? No, not really. As Andy said, there was no devolution of further powers. And a lot was made about moving the Treasury and parts of other departments to other parts of the country. But that, to me, says that it's all been about the politics of levelling up and not the economics of it. If you really wanted to make a difference, you would not only move bits of departments out of London, you would move decision-making powers and, and money to those decision-makers who are out of London as well. There's nothing of that. And even the departments that are being moved, they're being moved to different places. And that's not how you make a difference with this kind of intervention. First of all, they all ought to have been together. And second, they all ought to have been in a city. You create a magnet for people who are graduates. They want to be in a place where they can see themselves spending their career. So I think it's tokenism, this movement of departments. Although I do believe the government's very committed to levelling up for political reasons, they're not committed to the scale of change that's needed to deliver on it economically. Well, Andy, let's just begin on the first of those policies that was announced, which is Treasury North. This is the idea to create a new Treasury office outside of London to A, bring jobs and prosperity to places, but B, to diversify opinion making. And I actually think it was an idea that John McDonnell, the Labour shadow chancellor, came up with that Rishi Sunak seems to have borrowed. And there's been a bit of a bun fight between different northern cities, between Newcastle, Leeds, Bradford, even your own Huddersfield was in the running at one point. But ultimately, the government chose Darlington, northeast railway town. What's your view on that? Well, I think Darlington is a, is a fascinating choice, not least because it's on the main line to London, which says something about how much uh, time civil servants may be spending on the train. On the other hand, I do think the Treasury is different to the other departments that have moved in the past. The Met Office down to Exeter, ONS to Newport. It is a powerful decision-making body, and I do think it will make a difference, not least when people get on those trains and they get on their buses and they live in those places and they realise, you know, some of the challenges that people face. There is a question of whether that you can build a really big agglomeration of skills and talent around it, as Diane suggests. But I guess you've got York fairly nearby, you've got Middlesbrough, you've got Newcastle, and Leeds isn't too far away. And the Infrastructure Bank, of course, has gone to Leeds, which will bring some staff with it as well. So it's something that's long been talked about, and to see it actually happening, it is quite remarkable. I think, you know, if there are some Treasury civil servants to see what things are like in other parts of the country, that's a good thing. I really don't think it will do a lot for Darlington. And the ONS in Newport is a good example because people go on the train there and they get a taxi to the office and the taxi back and they don't see anything. And it's really hard to see any evidence that it's done much for Newport itself. And it really damaged the institution. 
So, you know, I think it's a good thing that they have announced this. I just regret that it wasn't done in a way that was going to have a much bigger impact. I think one example that is interesting to look at here, of course, is when the Met Office moved to Exeter, which was done in 2003. And that's actually the opposite of the ONS example, whereas the ONS lost 92% of its staff when it went to Newport. The Met Office kept 90% of its staff. But because we've seen so many different government departments going to different places, we've got, as Andy said, this new National Infrastructure Bank going to Leeds. We've got the Department for Culture, Media and Sport also going to Manchester. That gives us a good sense of those things. But let's have a look at one of the other levelling up things, Andy, which is Freeport. This is an idea very close to Rishi Sunak's heart. He did a policy paper in 2017 claiming that if they were successful in the US, they could create 86,000 jobs. He's announced eight of these Freeports, which are going to have looser planning laws, some tax breaks and also potential incentives to invest there as well. This policy is a bit controversial because we did have Freeport in the UK and they were closed down in 2012 because the government was concerned they were being used for tax avoidance. Yes, that's right. And indeed, the European Parliament is, is very much against them on exactly the same grounds. They're really large enterprise zones in a way, a bit like the ones we've had before in deprived parts of the country, which have sucked in big investments But as with all these things, there will be winners and there will be those who don't win. And the ones who don't win could end up having businesses attracted to the winners from their own location, which is only really shifting investment around the country and jobs around the country rather than actually creating new ones. I agree with Andy about them and the consensus that they do move value around. They are used for tax avoidance. The best hope for them is that they become these kind of Singapore on not on the Thames, but on the T's kind of entities. And I would really like to see the impact evaluations that judged which ones were going to get the three ports, which locations were going to get them. Now, let's talk about these funds, Andy. And you were doing some digging on this this week because the government's created all these pots of money to help improve the physical atmosphere of England's towns, many of them who voted for Brexit and voted Conservative for the first time in 2019. And the first one we saw yesterday was this levelling up fund, which is going to put £4.6 billion into small infrastructure projects. But when you looked at it, it seems as if some of the more leafier Tory constituencies were near the top of that pile and the Labour ones were nearer the bottom, which of course has created accusations of pork barrelling. Yeah, so what they did was they split the places into three categories, roughly a third of the country in, in each category. The highest priority places are more likely to get funding than those in the second category. And if I was to tell listeners that the highest priority and most in need places of levelling up are towns like Lewis in Sussex, cities like Canterbury and Kent, and indeed Richmondshire, the North Yorkshire constituency of the Chancellor himself, you might be surprised and you might even be more surprised to learn that places such as Salford, 20th most deprived place in the UK, is put into the second category and is therefore unlikely to receive any money out of this, as indeed was Barnsley. So the um, Metro Mayor of Sheffield, Dan Jarvis, who notably I don't think got anything in the budget this time, he's from the Labour Party, of course, he was the first to spot this seeming anomaly. And we're still waiting for the government to tell us what methodology they have used to come up with this ranking. And I think one thing that will become clear is that part of the methodology will be looking at what they call access to services. So if you live in a rural area where your bus service is pretty poor and you might live a long way from the doctors and your local library is shut down, I think you will get a lot more waiting under this system. 
On this issue of pork barrelling, it's something that seems to be unravelling a little bit from the budget. And our very own George Parker asked Rishi Sunak about this at the Downing Street press conference. This was his explanation. Thanks, George. So the formula for the, uh, the, 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 the grant payments for the new fund to give them some capacity funding to bid for projects is based on an index of economic need, uh, which is transparently uh, published, I think, actually, and based on a bunch of objective measures. I think if you look at all the things we're doing, they're benefiting people in every corner of the country. What's your feeling on this, Diane, about these pots of money and how it's allocated? Because we've seen quite a lot of controversy and policy making about algorithms deciding these sort of things. Well, perhaps the algorithm made the decisions, but some civil servant somewhere put the weights into the algorithm that decided what this ranking was going to be. And this looks pretty blatant, really. I'm sure there are people trying to retrofit the methodology to justify the rankings, even as we speak. There are two things. There's one about the amount of money that places get. And there are many places, and they would include places that Andy named like Salford, which are very low income and have multiple indicators of deprivation. Public services have been shrunken over many years and they need more money. The other issue is who gets to decide how to spend the money. And I don't see any move away from this centralism, which has stopped us taking advantage of local know-how, local information, and letting places decide for themselves. And so I'm, again, a bit sceptical about what extent these will make a lasting difference. Because the scale of what we need to level up is just enormous, actually. The pandemic has made the inequalities that we all know about even worse. I think we need a much tougher discussion about how to actually deliver on the political promises. Well, this is a very interesting question, Diane, I guess, to finish the discussion is, if you were drawing together a levelling up budget, what kind of things should Rishi Sunak be looking at? You know, is it about skills, productivity, or is it about infrastructure? What would be on your agenda? Well, unfortunately, it's about all of these, because both public and private sector have underinvested for a very long time. So the infrastructure is crumbling. We need new infrastructure. We need better broadband for everybody. We know that there are skills problems. It's both the level of skills and the way that the skills needed don't match up to what employers want. And that's a, another devolution question, I think. It's how does that granular information about needs in the labour market get conveyed to education and training providers in each area? It's done via Whitehall at the minute, and that leads to the mismatches. And there's this question of scale and jam spreading And the thing that we started on about different departments going to different places is a classic example of the government spreading different pots of jam too thinly to make a difference in any flavour. And you have to place some bets. You have to say, this place is where we're going to do all of the economic ministries of government. They'll all be together in this city. Another place is where we're going to do all of our interventions in research into biomedical advances and the pharmaceutical sector. And it's by planting big enough economic seeds that you might get them to grow. And that will then start the engines of other cities around the country going again after not firing for many, many decades now. And how much of Sunak's agenda has addressed this? I think the outlines are there, but the delivery isn't. It's too small scale and it's too much jam spreading. And it is, it seems to me, guided by political more than economic considerations. That's not surprising, really. Budgets are political events. But the government is going to have to deliver on the economic outcomes and preferably some of them before the next election. 
And finally, Andy, what did you make of this wider question? What would you be recommending to Rishi Sunak based on your conversations with the local leaders and people in these communities that feel as if they've maybe missed out on this budget? Yeah, I think they want more and they want faster. I mean, we talk about building back better. This seemed a little bit like building back the same with a few sort of sweeties thrown to various regions. And there was no plan for growth in this budget that anybody that I've spoken to can discern. It seemed to be a plan to grow maybe in a year's time when we get the other side of the pandemic. But there is damage being done now and that damage needs to be repaired. Andy and Diane, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do subscribe. You can find it through all your usual channels to get episodes as soon as they're released. And also leave us a nice rating or some positive feedback too. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh Delamere. The sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor, Amy Keane. Until next time, thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.